Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. We are living in unusual times for sure. So today is March 30th. 2020. And as anybody who's uh, able enough to listen to this podcast, you're probably paying attention to the media on a daily basis. And, you know, uh, clearly most of us are to some degree preoccupied with the latest news related to COVID-19, the stats locally, regionally, globally, and the limits of our own confinement to come to terms with how we're living for the next month and to figure out how we can make it work peacefully. Stop fighting, kids. That's for all of us, by the way. The variety of media has become our staple in this, for this information, especially around what the forecasts are and how concerned we should be. I don't know the facts any better than any other person, um, but I, and I have my concerns of how accurate they are. I do know, however, that the seasonal flus are generally experienced worse by those with hyperinsulinemia, meaning insulin resistance. And I think you've probably heard this before, on this particular podcast. I'm going to go a little deeper this time. This generally also means those who are overweight, obese, morbidly obese. Just in this last week, articles have been appearing out of major newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Sky News in the UK, MedPage, which I'll read the headlines in just a second. The new, the rather buried perspective, anticipates that the worst is is yet to come with COVID-19 as it settles into the heartland of the US where obesity rates are as high as 50%. The states with the highest obesity rates, the two that come to mind are West Virginia and Mississippi. Mississippi has been very reluctant to do social distancing and uh, shelter in residence to stay at home. So we'll see what happens. New, more specific and insightful references are now being made to the 1918 flu pandemic, and the fact that there were actually three waves of the Spanish flu. First did affect the old, and then the young, and then the middle-aged. So that's the combination is what made it so devastating, similar to now. But so far, we've only just experienced the elderly being most effective, and certainly that was iconic in what was going on in Northern Italy, and Lombardy specifically. According to the stats from the New York New York City, the chaos there uh, is really no distinction between any age group. So they're now coming in, except for the very young, they're now coming in kind of equally exposed 
uh, and equally contracted and equally um, uh, expressing symptoms and so on. It's no longer just the elderly, but it is still more people with comorbidities, that is, other things going on, that are highly associated with obesity and insulin resistance. To receive that information and not interpret it as some sort of societal prejudice against heavy people, it's important to know what insulin resistance is and, of course, what you can do to put the odds in your favor of not falling victim to this version of the flu, COVID-19. This is not rocket science by any means. We don't have to drill down to understand the molecular structures and reasons why certain things work and others don't. It is more about social distancing and sheltering uh, at home, sheltering in place to let, I mean, the theory there is to let the virus mutate to the point that it's not affecting. Yes, it's to flatten the curve as we hear, flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm the healthcare facilities, which is easy to do and is being done uh, in this country. But the story that's coming out is really something else. That is, now we've seen China, and supposedly China's numbers have not changed in the better course of a month, and they're even opening up the mass transportation system. I think that's wonderful if that's true, and I don't know. China is obviously one that does not want their information, the dirty laundry, to get out to the public media. Italy, on the other hand, was we all watched it happen, and to the point that they've had to make choices that nobody ever wants to make, and that is the the idea of not everybody can get the same treatment because the facilities can't handle that many. So they have to triage, which means they have to take a a guess on who they can help the most. And those people are the ones that are treated. The others are left on the gurney in the waiting room or whatever. That's pretty tough choices. That's pretty uh, emotionally devastating for everybody. And then such people die by themselves. This is not, by the way, this podcast is not to go off on the negative. This is to give a little more insight where I don't believe it's being represented in the public, but I'll show you that it's starting to be represented in the public. I don't have any more secrets than anybody else. Okay, then. There's another aspect is that there's, when we talk about waves, the reference to the waves of the 1918 epidemic was really about three different mutated waves. It affected three different demographics, in essence. There's another way of talking about waves, and uh, this this I got from a blog that I follow from a New Zealander, uh, Keith uh, Woodford. And Keith Woodford, I've gotten to know him, I think, uh, 15 years ago, maybe. I think it was 13. And he wrote The Devils in the, the, Devils in the Milk, which was he was the first to really come and elucidate the difference between the A1 and the A2 casein and the difference that has on people's immune system and so on and so forth. He's an agronomist. And so basically he's concerned about the economy of of milk, the economy of the uh, agricultural industries in New Zealand and how they relate to Australia and how they relate to uh, New Zealand. So reading his blogs, you get a sense of the economy through the agricultural economy, but what's happening in that part of the world that also happens in the United States. So it's it's a nice uh, supplemental way of looking at what's going on in the world. So in his reference, and he's very, digs very deeply, he sees three different waves as well. The first wave was in China, and the second wave was in Italy and in the United States. But the third wave is for all the countries that have yet to really report in. 
the 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 countries that in no way have healthcare systems to handle this, and more unfortunately, they have no way to keep people in their homes, or that such people will follow up with you're going to shelter in place. So that is a another way, an altogether different way of looking at three different waves. I never quite thought of it that way. But some of the articles that have been uh, coming up, and you'll hear one of them because it's a news broadcast from the from the UK. But um, let's start with about a week ago on May 23rd, May 23rd, March 23rd. Today is the 30th, so about a week ago exactly. We have Americans unfit to fight a pandemic. Epidemics of obesity, sedentary habits, chronic stress leave a nation with poor baseline health. And it goes on, and that's actually in a, I'd call it a semi-medical journal. And it talks about what we've always known. You know, we talked about since the early 80s, you could even go back and say arguably the mid-70s, I don't think it's quite back that far, when we saw those charts begin to climb. What brought on obesity? We all point to something. Is it the processed foods? Is it the high consumption of sugar? Is it the um, the chemicals that were put in? You know, not. Well, I guess you could come back to processed foods, but is it the high carbs? Because we then came out with guidelines in '77 saying no, you should have low fat, uh, high carb diet. Well, that was disastrous, and so now we're trying to dig out from under there. And if you're anybody who grew up in the northern latitudes, it's digging out from under a very heavy snowstorm of bad, misrepresented, and I think um, manufactured information. And we might say it's another example of manufacturing consent um, by Norm Chomsky's. That's a concept that he would talk about how that's what would happen. And so I think so. I think so. But however you get there, the reality is such that you need to drop the carbs very quickly. You really need to start thinking about what you're doing and you need to stop making excuses for, yes, I'm stressed, so I do this. Yes, I'm this. At some point, some little sliver of discipline has to start, whether that's changing your routine by pushing away the processed foods. If you want to start at that very light step, hide them away, put them in the cupboards. You live in a family and other people ask them to do that. Set down some basic ground rules to get it out of your sight. Now, obviously you can go way beyond that. You can say you throw it all away. There's no carbs for the most part in your kitchen. Since we're all at home, we have something we call a kitchen. could be a cupboard, could be an apartment, could be a one burner cook stove or whatever. And the cubby hole that's underneath that. So whatever that is, out with the carbs, Ideally, you'll have some little fridge that you can keep, I would say, good quality of meat. It doesn't have to be meat. Meat, chicken, fish, you know that list. But we're going to all call that whole food protein, okay? Whole food protein. It means it's not a protein powder. It means it's not a, a, a cupboard of supplements. It's real food. So out with the carbs. And if you want to have carbs, they're salads. And they're organic salads. And the reason we say organic is you don't want the pesticides on there. And it's just such a dark hole to go down to talk about that. Used to, part of my practice is all about um, exposing the poor quality of most of our produce in the grocery store because of the produce. Now I don't have to do that. Go to an environmental working group and they have their list called the Dirty Dozen, the worst things you could, worst, top worst produce items that you could eat. And then the Clean 15, which are the least contaminated. So that's that out of the way. But that's pretty much where we're headed. But the problem is this message isn't getting out. And the problem is that it's very easy to stay on track with a terrible diet and think you're doing okay. 
You can justify it because you had a hard day. You can justify it because these are the easy foods to pick up. You can justify it because you want to feel good. And we now have talked about how feeling good with processed food means you're feeding your dopamine fix. And you're going to feel good at the end of the day because whether you are the at-home parent or partner who's taking care of, well, now we're all at home, um, taking care of the kids or whatever the things were that needed to be taken care of at home and the other person was out working and came in, at the end of the day, the, is the end of the day, as all adults, they justify their actions by saying, I put it in a good adult day. I was an adult for eight hours. I don't have to be an adult anymore. I can sit back and used to be, you'd have your drink. Um, but now it's usually I can have my fast food. I can snack for a while before dinner. I can have load up on cheese, right? Cheese is one of those things you don't hear much about in the keto world because it's just too politically incorrect. I don't buy it. I love cheese as much as everybody else, but I also know what cheese does. And that's another three or four podcasts. Feel free to look those up. So where are we now? So now we have MedPage today. It says, you know, my dad made a Costco wrong a few days ago, blah, blah, blah. And sort of says, you know, what is this person? This is really interesting. From cart to cart, I saw boxes of soda, chips, candy bars, a lot of frozen chicken wings. The picture epitomized a bandage-based approach we have as a country towards health and disease. Yeah, and it can start there. What was the next one? This came out, actually it was the same day and it was from the UK. It's called the Metro. It's that obese people are at higher risk from uh, the coronavirus. And um, let's see if I can pull out something pretty quick here. The mean age of COVID-19 patients was 70 years old and one of the major risk factors for admission to intensive care is obesity. They're putting it right out there, is obesity. What they should be saying is insulin insensitivity, if you want to say that, um, insulin resistance, too much insulin to keep your glucose down. You know, when you think about, we, we now have cars waiting in line to be tested and they have drive-through testing and that's a nasal swab. So it has nothing to do with getting a shot. But as people do actually get blood work done, they should do ins fasting glucose and insulin in the very least. And then they could throw in CRP, but neither another issue there. That's the inflammatory marker. If they just did insulin, a $5 test. Glucose is a $2 test. For all of 10 bucks, you could cover and you would have an illustration. You would have data showing you that this is actually the thing that we're after. And then when the flu comes in, it hits those with the highest insulin. Relative, not even relative to there, it hits those with the highest insulin first, and those those with the highest insulin and non-normal as an elevated glucose levels. So, th so there you go. If that demographic, if we can call it that, if that collection of data was defined, we would know to protect them. We would know to address, to bring in the information, to bring in the education, to bring in the treatment for this particular group of people and say, these are the things we need to do to change. And you know all those things we need to do to change. But we can connect. We would then, in order to drive the point home, well, now we have this pandemic here, but we could have gone go back to the MERS epidemic or the SARS epidemic. And we could see the data there. And we could say, this is the data, as much as we know it, because we weren't taking it that carefully back then. But a lot of people did come into the hospital to find out if they had SARS or MERS, and they did get some of these other tests. So the data is there to show who is most effective. And to just limit it by age alone is really an ignorant way to go nowadays. It's just like height and weight. 
you know, it's like, uh, that's not really that helpful. Nor is age that helpful. Yes, it's relevant and things as we get older obviously get, get worse for us, but they also can be addressed and get better for us. So it doesn't have to be that way. Let's go a little deeper. So I'm advocating all of five, what did I say, it was $10? You could do it $5, I'm sure, and even less. And you would set a whole new visual perspective of the population that can be treated proactively ahead of time. Well, after the pandemic passes this time, we won't be thinking about that. And nobody's going to want to go back and say, golly, you know, there are some lessons we learned. Nobody's going to want to hear about it. That's the thing about crises and calamities. It's sheer chaos and nobody wants, wants to go back and remember the darkness of that chaos to extract the lessons that could clearly be applied to the next calamity, chaos, health crisis. So I don't mean to sound like a, an AM talk radio show host, but there's some obvious things that can be done. And only now are these articles now coming up saying this is exactly the case. It's obesity. It's not just age. Um, uh, it's a lot to, lot to read here, but it's very interesting. I will post these on the show notes because I think these are great things and it gives you that perspective. But you could pick your country. You could go to Turkey if you want to. You can go to Iran and Iraq. Obviously, they're not as uh, have the obesity concern as much as we do, but they do have it. And just see who is most affected by the flu. And so you can go around the world and you'll see that this was the area. Others are affected as well. But once you have this sort of honeypot for the virus, others that have nothing to do with this particular uh, qualification in terms of insulin and, 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 and glucose and, and insulin resistance are more than likely to be affected. But the other thing is that you can have insulin resistance 10 years before you have somebody who is noticeably overweight, 10 years before obesity, you know, 10 years before diabetes. We'll call it pre-diabetes, but it's even pre-pre-diabetes. Most people don't, most doctors don't diagnose you as pre-diabetic because they don't know enough to do insulin before they see the signs and symptoms that you're probably a diabetic. You know, things like things like weight, but things like hypertension, things like uh, too much sugar in your urine, some of the obvious things. Some of the obvious things that you could have spotted 200 years ago, certainly 100 years, more than 100 years ago. So these changes can be made pretty easily. Let me bring up this one. Oh, here's yet today. Just came out today, March 30th. This is in the New York Times. Americans are already too diseased to go back to work right now. The huge burden of obesity and chronic conditions among people in the U.S. puts most of us at risk. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, I don't know why why this is coming out now. It should have come out like years ago. Um, I think they're running out of the, the drama of COVID-19 and um, SARS-CoV-2, whatever you want to refer to it, as causing all the problems. Now it's like, huh, yeah, this absolutely is right on. And, and they're doing a great job relative to this. So here we have, coming up, we have a news broadcast from, uh, what do they call it, Skylink in the UK, Sky News in the UK. And this came up March 22nd. So you can sort of see how 
I won't say it's manufactured consent on this, but there's a trigger. Once somebody starts telling the truth and it's a pretty big uh, broadcast or a pretty big journal or a pretty big newspaper, then they all want a piece of it and they go back to, hopefully, the source of that information. But here you go. Listen to this. I, even the first couple of minutes and I'll shoot to the end. Um, this guy gets, I love the way they do interviews on the news. This guy, the newscaster, introduces a speaker and then shuts up. Doesn't interrupt him. Goes all the way to the end. Here we go. Take a listen. ...is, well, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, to be as healthy as possible. Doctors are looking for a vaccine, but while they're doing that, there's a sensible call for us to all have a balanced lifestyle. Well, let's talk to cardiologist Dr. Asim Malhotra. Good to see you this morning, Asim. I mean, we know, obviously, that people most at risk have got compromised immune systems. What do we therefore do to, to boost, to bolster our immune systems? Steve, I think the first thing to say before we talk about that, I think it's really important, as you've, you know, uh, continuously reiterated on Sky News, people must, must maintain social distancing. So that means I think we all have to behave like we've got the virus, whether we're asymptomatic, we've got some symptoms, and keep away from people as much as possible. If you have to go out, and we'll talk about that in a second, then maintain a two-meter distance from the person uh, that you're with. Now, the elephant in the room, Steve, and all of this, which hasn't been discussed so far, is the people who are most vulnerable to severe complications from this virus have chronic metabolic disease. So hear that? The elephant in the room, those that are most affected by the virus that nobody wants to talk about, suffer from some form of metabolic disease. What does me metabolic disease means? And he will later go on to define it. I'll give you my very paraphrased way of defining it. It's diseases that obviously affect your metabolism. And but it affects your metabolism by starting with chronically exposed or consistently high levels of glucose, which then means that you've had consistent, if you have consistently high levels of glucose, it means your insulin isn't even strong enough to get your insulin, to keep your glucose down to normal levels. So you're already losing the, fat, the, the, um, the fight. So even before the glucose gets up, your insulin's gonna be high for, and some people think even 10 years before your glucose is actually abnormal. So for those 10 years, your glucose was, your insulin was never taken by your family physician, you were getting worse and worse. You were getting a metabolic disease. So it could be, uh, certainly diabetes uh, is a metabolic disease. So you have diabetes, you have heart disease, you have, uh, it's really vascular disease, as we've talked about before, pick the part of your body. Most people, most concern is obviously about heart, and uh, certainly about brain. So you have cerebral vascular conditions, you have cardiovascular conditions, then you can even go to phlebitis, which is other vascular problems for the rest of your body. So it begins there, and then it starts to affect more and more inflammation, more and more inflammation affects things like your joints, therefore you have your arthritis, it begins to affect more and more things, and now you get organ uh, problems that start to, to, to happen. Then you get endocrine problems that start to happen, but we'll just go on from there. I've looked at this data uh, quite extensively. If you look at Italy, the average age of death, of course, was older population, 81. Um, they have the oldest population in Europe, yes. But they, the average person who died had at least 2.7 um, chronic conditions, which included high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, smoking, and cancer. In Wuhan, more than 60% of the people who suffered major complications, and tragically, many of these people died, 
had type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. Did you hear that? Wuhan. You didn't hear that before, probably. This is now going through the data. More than 60% of those who died in Wuhan. So if you imagine the numbers you're getting out of Wuhan, whether they're just cases or those who died, and you have removed them. In other words, they did not will pretend in a fancy world, in a, in, a, in a fictional world, that they did not exist because they're all healthy over there, right? We tend to have a stereotype that uh, the Asians are healthier, they're not obese, and so on and so forth. That might have been 100 years ago. It's not now. They eat very similar diets to us, unfortunately, very high carb, et cetera, et cetera, and processed foods. So 60% of all of that, that would bring it under the radar of an epidemic or barely at an epidemic. It would be back to the levels of maybe lower than SARS and lower than MERS. And so when you take that, this is the whole point. If you take that out of all the numbers of being reported, you then are left with, would there be an epidemic? Would there be a pandemic? That's why the name of this podcast is the epidemic within the pandemic. This is the driver. So insulin resistance, metabolic disease, and all its variations is the driver for the pandemic. Interesting. Now, the reason I talk about the elephant in the room, uh, Steve, is that the, the general health, unfortunately, of the British, American, and many European people is dire. We have six out of 10 adults overweight or obese in this country, similar in America. Um, only 17.4% of people in the United States are metabolically healthy. Now, why is that important? Well, first and foremost, if you have high blood glucose, Did you hear what he just said? Only 17.4%, that's a pretty specific percentage, by the way, are metabolically healthy. That's less than one in five people. So if you're in a gathering, if you're in a gathering, wherever you are, and you look around you, less than one in five people, call it one in six for the most part, pretty close to one in six, one in six people are metabolically healthy around you. Oh my gosh, that's huge. 17.4% is the percentage of people who are metabolically healthy, call it in the West, he's primarily meaning the US and the UK. Because if you're pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic, then you have a dysregulated immune system. Your white cells cannot function uh, optimally. The same applies to people who are overweight or obese as well. We know people who with a... So again, I hate to interrupt him because he's... But he's really heavy with the information. It dysregulates your immune system. Your white cells do not respond like they should. So your white cells are your immune system, right? It's your innate immune system. It's your moral or your, and it can go on from there. It's different kinds of your, four different kinds of your white blood cells and how they mount an immune response to either bacterial or virus infection. And so when you don't even have the ability to coordinate that, which is really what he's talking about, you don't have the ability to coordinate your white blood cells, to coordinate your immune system, the little things end up being a big thing and they can't be expelled. Obesity suffer more complications from influenza. So I think this is a really important message that people need to get across. Now, it's not all doom and gloom, because as you started, you know, as you, in the intro, you said that we can do things from a lifestyle perspective. Well, lifestyle changes, Steve, can actually have an impact on people's health within weeks to months. We know type 2 diabetes, for example, can be. And that's my point. Lifestyle interventions, which we've all been talking about, drop your carbs, make yada, yada, yada. We've said that too much here, probably. 
is that that does not take a long time. You can start doing this now as a family, make it a family project. Now's a great time. It's like everybody's gathered back around the hearth, as they used to say. Remember the fireplaces? That was the center of 150 years ago or 200 years ago. I know times have changed, but now it's the kitchen. Gather around the kitchen and saying, we're going to do things differently here. We're going to be a healthier family. Wouldn't that be a great little family come together story? Even if it's just you and one other person. Frankly, even if it's just you and you, it's a great conversation to have. Let's start now. We're all in our houses. We can either drink ourselves to death with excuses. We can either eat all the poor quality foods, primarily fast food, carbs, for all the excuses, or we can make a change. Put into remission, um, up to 50% of cases within months of changing lifestyle. So all these things need to be thought about. Now, what, what would I advise? What am I advising my patients? Um, what am I advising the public uh, to do about this? Well, first and foremost, the problem with obesity and excess body fat is really related to ultra-processed food. Half of the diet in Britain is ultra-processed food. We need to curb that considerably. A lot of people are going to be at home now. This is a great opportunity to think about spending more time cooking nutritious food. Think about what you eat is going to impact your immune system. And the likelihood, uh, Steve, is that we are probably all at some point going to get this virus. The question is, are we going to have mild symptoms or more severe symptoms? If we look after our health properly now, we can protect ourselves from severe illness. So eating nutritious whole foods, cutting the ultra-processed foods, the snacks, the crisps, the chocolates, all that to a bare minimum. Uh, if we can do that, we're already on a good way uh, to better health. Being active. Now, a lot of people are going to have to stay at home. I understand that. Um, CrossFit Health. Uh, have a website, a free website, where people can go online and look at home exercises. Physical activity is a major problem. William Byrd, uh, there's an article today in the Sunday Express, a new story. William Byrd, who's an advisor to the World Health Organization of Physical Inactivity, has estimated that just from three months of being uh, inactive, extra three months, on, in addition to the inactivity we already had, could result in an extra 7,000 deaths in the next one year in the UK. So what can we do about that? Simple things. Um, going out for brisk walks for 10 minutes a couple of times a day can boost the immune system. Really important. Some strength training at home. You can do home exercise. So I, I really stress that very importantly. The other thing is sleep. We need to try and ensure, I know it's difficult, people are very stressed right now. We need to try and ensure that we can get at least seven to eight hours of sleep. Now, one quick anecdote. Many years ago, working as a junior doctor, working very busy shifts, I suffered the worst bout of flu I can ever imagine. And what happened leading up to that was three things. One is I was very stressed. I wasn't sleeping. I was snacking on junk foods. And then to make the situation worse, I then overtrained. I overexercised. I ran for an hour at high intensity. Actually, what many people don't realize, if you overexercise, if you do too much, it depresses the immune system for at least 24 hours. So let's just think about this carefully. And of course, let's do what we can to reduce our stress levels. You know, it means connecting with family members, even if it's via Skype or on the phone. Uh, doing things that we can try and enjoy doing in the household, but also getting out and getting some fresh air. If we do all of this, Steve, it's not just an opportunity for us to help save many lives from the coronavirus, but moving forward, we will get through this. We will get through this. Our healthcare system will be in a much better place in a year or two from now, because one of the reasons we're not coping with this crisis is because of these chronic uh, metabolic diseases related to lifestyle over the last couple of decades that have increased, have meant that our healthcare systems were already overstretched. We've now got the coronavirus involved. This is a complete public health crisis, as you know. 
a couple of things he said. He obviously talked about exercise and uh, great references. So myself and Judy, my wife, that you now know, is that we are actually um, starting to film what we're doing, which is basically Dr. Ben's workouts uh, with bands and some of our own variations of that. But you really do need to come up with, and there's plenty of places of doing this. So I will, we will be posting some of this in, in the blog because it is, just as he's saying, it's it's a metabolic intervention by doing at-home exercises. Uh, we're going to be more high-intensity focused with uh, resistance training. That's a big deal. He talked about sleep and how you get there. The exercise will help. But these things, I'm going to post these links. Um, what I also posted out in our Facebook group, by the way, is what a, a basic protocol for helping your immune system. Uh, and if you're into something like that, if that's of interest to you, I'll put a link and you can do an opt-in on that one. Uh, and that's totally free. But some basic things that I hope you're hearing that you can do, and the reason Judy and I are going to start doing this and for our Facebook group and maybe put it on YouTube, we have no desire to be YouTube uh, aficionados or influencers, is we're just average people doing this. And it's important for average people to be doing this. And this is what moves the whole society is when the average person and people and community, whatever average now means, becomes healthier because they're just doing the basic things. Okay. Don't let it just be the affluent that have the time and money to go to their clubs. You don't need a club for this. We're all at home. We're all hunkered down. We all have the same limitations, 99.9% of us. So uh, we'll share those. And I hope you'll view those. This isn't a plug for that, but it's to say that we're doing exactly what he's saying as well. I just happened to rehear this and realize that's what we're doing to continue. Look, I mean, uh, to be honest, a, a lot of that sounds like common sense, you know, eating more fruit and veg, you know, co cooking stuff from scratch. And as you say, a lot of people are going to have more time to do that now. So it's a good time to be getting into that habit. But you started off talking about metabolic health and poor rates of metabolic health. What does that actually mean? Um, well, metabolic health, essentially, Steve, so for, in simple terms, is uh, basically lifestyle things that we do as part of our lifestyle that have adverse effects on conditions related to excess body fat. So high blood pressure, probably about 50% of high blood pressure is related to excess body fat. Type 2 diabetes is a condition of, you know, I would call it ultra-processed food disease, really. Uh, too many refined carbohydrates and sugar in particular, unhealthy fat. Did you hear that? Type 2 diabetes is ultra-processed food addiction. Addiction. These contribute to that. Um, and of course, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, which is obviously my area of expertise, is related to these conditions or risk factors. Smoking, let's not forget smoking. There's still a relatively high prevalence of smoking. It's come down dramatically in this country over the last few decades. But if you smoke, then you're much more likely to have complications from respiratory viruses. So this is the best time, more best time than ever. Better, there's no better time than, than now to stop smoking as well. So if you combine all these conditions with obesity, then these are what we call the chronic metabolic diseases. And also, I know it's, you know, a lot of people can't do much about this now, but moving forward, we think there is a very strong uh, uh, evidence to suggest that these chronic conditions relate to, you know, poor lifestyle choices also are a big contributing factor to development of cancer too. Okay, Asim, as always, good to talk to you. Thank you. Isn't that a kick in the head? It was fast, it was intense, it was fact-filled, and it's the same old song a number of us are saying. So I hope you appreciated this. And that so I would say we're all we're all hunkered down together now, really. 
and uh, we're finding the the limitations of our tolerance towards each other as we live in you know whether it's multiple people in the same place or just you and your partner or whatever is that exercise has to be part of it that really is a key to getting along with each other for one um the other is really getting out the the processed foods really getting out the carbs and uh working on getting a good sleep so I will leave it at that, and I'm going to put in the links to these particular articles, uh, certainly to this news broadcast, and um, to our immune protocol that we put together. And I hope that helps. I hope you really take this home and saying, you know, now is the time to start. There could be, in a very backhanded way, a gift here, and that gift is we've now come back to our family, our nuclear centers, right? The nuclear family that is supposed to be disappearing. We're now back to a nuclear family, even if it's only for a month. And in that restructuring, temporary restructuring, we can have conversations like we didn't have before that are actually life-saving. So until next time, thanks for listening. This is Carl. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview, or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, schizophrenia, or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.